the very recently retired pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis in the US, and many of you will know a prolific writer, asked this question in one of his books. He said this, I think to us, he said, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters... Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? It's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question because we've spent the last few weeks thinking through some of the amazing and various dimensions and themes of the new creation in these verses. We've been in chapters 21 and 22. Do do catch up on the website if you haven't already. In, in week one, we zoomed in on the, on the people aspect of the new heavens and the new earth. It will be a place full of people from, from every tribe and tongue and nation, but they will be a people who, who no longer suffer, who no longer sin, those who enjoy unhindered service of their Lord and their Saviour. Last week, Peter very kindly filled in excellently at the last minute, I'm in my illness, and, and he helped us to grasp the language used of place, said it would be a city, a city that highlights for us a place of security, a place of perfection, a place of community. And also the garden, the idea of refreshment and and nourishment and life. And remember we said this, this isn't a philosophy or an idea or a theory. We're not talking imaginary ethereal stuff. It's not floaty clouds and harps and nighties. This is real. This is solid. A new heaven and a new earth, just as Jesus was raised bodily as the first fruits of the new creation, what so will our future be? Real, bodily. C.S. Lewis outlines something of this delightfully in the picture language in Narnia books. You might know the last battle, the final book. Mr. Tumnus the Fawn showing Lucy around the new Narnia. And we read this. Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and seas and mountains, but but they were not strange to her. She knew them all. I see, she said, this is still Narnia and yet more real and more beautiful than the Narnia down below. Real, solid, beautiful. And so Piper's question for us still rings very true. Could you be satisfied with heaven? If Christ were not there. He said this in the same book. He said, people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. He finishes, if we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. It's very challenging. And so you see why, as we look at our verses in Revelation 21 and 22, we see at the heart of it all is God's. He is there because the gospel is about him. It's about him giving himself to us in the form of his son who then dies on a cross so that we might have him and be with him forever. 
The gospel is all about God. If that's something that you've never trusted for yourself, I would urge you to trust Jesus for yourself. Put your faith in him to deal with your sins so that you might have him forever. That is life. That is the life that we were made for. Life with the God who made us. God's people in heaven are described as those written in the Lamb's book of life. So this morning I want to think about three aspects of this life as described in these verses. I want us to see that true life firstly is the presence of God. Secondly, true life fully enjoyed by everyone. And thirdly, true life fully enjoyed forever. So the first one there on the screen, true life is the presence of God. The culmination of everything is to see and to know God personally. It's not the physical place, as beautiful as that might be. It's not the lack of suffering and sin, as much as we may long for that. It's not to see the people that we miss who have gone before us, although being reunited with those recently we've lost Maudlam Road will be brilliant. It's not anything else, how good they may be. It's to see his face, to know him perfectly. That is life. That is the most important thing in the new creation. It's as if it's the old creation, but encompassed, gloriously filled with God's presence. Have a look at a couple of uh, sections with me. 21 verses 2 to 4. Eyes down, verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and they will be and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And flick over, chapter 22, verses 3 to 5. No longer, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Now as you read the Revelation, before you get to chapter 21, Revelation if you like, confines God to the one who sits on the throne in heaven. That is how God is described. It doesn't mean he's not present with his people now. In chapter 11, he's present to the worshippers in the sanctuary. In chapter 4, he is present as the slaughtered lamb. Chapter 14, he's present as the Holy Spirit is with the faithful witnesses who have been martyred as they followed in the steps of the lamb. Chapter 15, he's present... In judgments. But only when evil has been finally done away with will God's throne be on earth. Will he dwell again among his people? And God's dwelling among his people, of course, is one of the great themes of the Bible, the great longings of the Bible. It all starts off with close intimacy and fellowship. And we read in Genesis, God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And yet it's broken, it's smashed apart by sin, it's, it's ruined by rebellion. And yet as the story unfolds, as the plan stretches out before us, again and again we see God among his people and we see the promise of God among his people. So if certain individuals, of Abraham for example, people say, God is with you in everything you do. Or for Isaac, the Lord says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants. For for Jacob, God promises, I am with you and I will watch over you and go with you and I will bring you back to this land. Individuals knowing the presence of God. And then they travel to the promised land and at the very centre of the camp each night is the tabernacle the very middle of the camp, God in the midst of his people, at the heart of his community. And then you reach the promised land and they build a temple, a place to worship God, at the heart of the people. And yet even then there's this promise of more. There's more to come. The promise of Isaiah glimpsing ahead, God will one day again be among his people. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a sign and will call him Emmanuel. I'll be with my people. And so we get to Jesus. God dwelling, literally tabernacling among his people. And then Jesus, post-resurrection, as he returns to the Father, he challenges and he promises his people that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, I am with you to the very end of the age. But then in our passage, 22 verse 4, they will see his face. This is God dwelling with his people in a new way. It's the full answer to the, um, do you remember the priestly blessing of number six? Remember that? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And yet this is the face that actually no mortal could survive. Exodus 33 verse 20. God says, you cannot see my face. For no one may see it and live. And so here is the culmination of that. Here is the climax. We are cleansed fully and finally by the blood of Jesus. We have resurrection bodies like Jesus. And we shall see his face. God dwelling among his people. A face... A face expresses something of who a person is. We have a knowledge of somebody's identity when we can see their face, when we see them clearly. It's why people get so twitchy about teenagers wearing hoodies, isn't it? We can't see their faces. And so to see God's face will mean that we know him fully and finally. We will know full and final grace. We will experience peace. It will be amazing. It will be beautiful. 
So do you know, I wonder if at times we can overplay our Christian experience now. There is a presence and an intimacy that we have now. As Jesus promised through his Holy Spirit, he is with us always to the end of the age. And that is such a comfort and a joy, but there is so much more to come. I found sometimes people can talk, or perhaps sing, as if we do have heaven on earth now. And yet then that seems to downplay to me the future that we will enjoy. Listen to what Paul says um, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, those famous verses in that passage. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. In these bodies, on this earth, we will struggle. And life will be hard. And then one day he will personally come and remove the curse. You see it in 21 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a personal thing. And then we shall know him fully. We see but a reflection now. We know in part now. Then we shall know fully. And we shall have life. And it will be a life will be enjoyed by all. Second point. I think the language in these verses shows something to us of the universality as the people of God are all able to enjoy eternal life. They are all able to enjoy an intimacy with God. And this intimacy is painted in in forms and themes and ideas from the Bible that they would understand. Do you remember we said in the first week that that God's not trying to confuse us as we read Revelation. He's simply using language from the Bible to explain themes and ideas so that our hearts can latch on. So notice particularly that the, the religious language from the Old Testament being used here. At the same time, it seems to me that, that there is no temple and there are no priests, but then it's all temple and we're all priests. So we're told... Let's think firstly about temple first. We're told unequivocally, 21 verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There is no temple. Where do you go to meet with God now? You go to him. He is there. You don't need a temple. There is no temple. But then at the same time, in one sense, it's all temple. Peter looked at it last week. The city of God is transformed into this enormous cube shape. Remember, um, verse 15 and 16, the, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. And the city was laid out like a square as long as it was rock wide. He measured the city with a rod, 12,000 stadia in length, and as wide and as high as it is long. It's about 1,400 miles high and wide. and That's about from, from Oxford to Athens, give or take. And as Peter said, this was the extent of the known populated world. He's saying there's room enough for all God's people. Anyone who's to be there will be there. It's huge. But as well as that, there is only one cube in the Old Testament. Only one cube. 
And that was the most holy place in the temple. The whole city is the most holy place. There's no segregation at all now, no outer courts, no court for women, no court for Gentiles or foreign tribes, all equal. All have access, intimate access. So say there is no temple, but in a funny way, it is all temple. A similar story for priests as well, I think. Have a look at verses 19 to 20. Let me read them again, all those jewels. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. So twelve jewels, in some way grasping for us the idea that God's people are, are, are beautiful. The splendour of these jewels, of the city of God's people, they're precious, they're costly, valuable. But also, and it's not exact, but the twelve jewels here seem to correspond to, to the description in Exodus of the high priest's garments. Aaron's breastpiece, it seems to me, from Exodus 28, verse 15 to 21, have a look later, there's, there's a correspondence bit there. And so it seems to me the image being drawn is that the high priest is no longer special because we're all high priests. So imagine the high priest, the one person from the whole people, after all the various sacrifices for their sins and and wearing all the right gear, who once a year had access to God, once a year able to draw into his presence in the Holy of Holies. And now... That's everyone. We're all adorned with with a priestly breastpiece. All of God's people, everyone able to enjoy relationship. Not just once a year, all the year round. I'm not needing to go through all the personal sacrifices ourselves, because Jesus has for us. We are spotless. We are clean due to his blood. The privilege of the Old Testament high priest is now the privilege of everyone who trusts Jesus. I think it's there as well in 22 verses 3 to 4. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. His name on their foreheads. Again, I think that picks up stuff from Exodus 28, verse 36 to 38, if you're taking notes. You see, from Aaron onwards, each high priest, as they would enter the most holy place, would have on their foreheads, attached to their turban, a little golden frontlet plate with the title, Holy to the Lord, written on it. And now we all will. We will all be holy to the Lord, set apart for him. We will all be priests. And so there are no priests apart from Jesus. It feels slightly wrong to use um, Disney to describe or to illustrate this. But do you remember in the Incredibles uh, Pixar movie? Remember the Incredibles family dressed in red lycra? 
superpowers. There's a baddie called Syndrome. Ring any bells? Yeah, you're too embarrassed to admit it, but yes. Syndrome's vision, his dream, is to make everyone, sorry, to make himself rich by making everyone a superhero. He says this, he says, I'll give them the most spectacular heroics the world has ever seen. And when I'm old and I've had my fun, I'll sell my inventions so that everyone can have powers. Everyone can be super. And when everyone's super, no one will be. Fucking liken it a tiny bit to that. There were particular special set-apart people in the Old Testament. There were priests who were privileged and special. But now everyone is. Everyone is special. That's where syndrome is wrong. We are all special. We are all set apart as we trust Christ. We all now have intimate access to God, just as the high priest did for once a year. And it will be access that will be enjoyed forever. Third point. True life fully enjoyed forever. I don't know about you, sometimes I find it very hard to be able to imagine or think about or conceive forever. We're in these bodies on this earth and tomorrow it's Monday morning and then it's Tuesday and we have to deal with pressures and struggles and hassles and joys and snow. And we chase after the little things of life. And suddenly we come to church and we're talking about eternity. And we're singing about eternity. And it feels so far off. How do we marry the two together? How do we combine them? Listen to uh, the theologian Don Carson. He says this, he says, The treasures of the new heaven and the new earth are wonderful beyond our wildest expectation. Sometimes the pages of scripture give us glimpses couched in glittering metaphor as the resources of language are called up to tell us of things still barely conceivable. At other times, scripture extrapolates the advanced tastes we enjoy here and pictures love undiluted, a way of life utterly sinless, integrity untarnished, work and responsibility without fatigue, deep emotions without tears. Worship without restraint or disharmony or sham. And best of all, the presence of God in an unqualified and unrestricted and personal way. Such treasures cannot be assailed by corrosion or theft. You ought to try and get your mind around what's to come. What will multiply the good stuff from the now. Rather like C.S. Lewis at the start, he seems to say the joys and the pleasures of the now are the shadows of what is to come. They give us just fleeting glimpses, tiny tastes of what will be. And so rather than them making us feel more comfortable here, they should make us long for what is to come. The taste now should, should leave us wanting more. More of the time when God's perfect and full presence will give light, transformation. Have a look again at verse 23 and 25. The city does not 
need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. Or as the children saw in verse 25, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. No cycles of day or night anymore. Why? Well, because night was a picture of darkness and sin. Night was when evil happened, where raiders would come and, and threaten, where sin and debauchery was common. Night was bad, but now there is no bad. God's presence has transformed society and brought life. And verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 5, they, God's people, will reign forever and ever. And we say, why will they reign? Why will we reign? Who will God's people reign over? I think the point is not that there are people who need to be subjected, who need to be ruled over, but rather we will so be counted with God and his rule that we not only take on his name, holy to the Lord but we become associated with his throne. We're reigning with him, perhaps responsible in the same way that Adam and Eve were. Forever. But finally, as we finish, have a final glance at verse 3. We, we saw it a couple of weeks ago. It's a strange concept. His servants will serve him a particular type of serving going on from the word. It's a serving in the temple type serving. As if God's people, as we've seen, are priests. Some translations even have it as worship. We will be those who will serve forever. And, and immediately some of us are thinking, what? I don't want to serve. I had enough of rotors. Late nights, washing up. That sounds too constrictive and and claustrophobic for me. I want freedom. I don't want to be hemmed in by having to serve. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? I wonder how it makes you feel. My son Joshua um, is is at nursery school, as some of you will know, and there's a kind of reward system whereby for good behaviour, as a reward, you get to be a special servant for a day. You get to help with registers and milk and various tasks. And a member of my family said, that sounds a very strange title. It doesn't sound very rewarding by being a servant. And in one sense, they're right, aren't they? It does feel alien to us in some sense, but only because of earthly bosses who do not lead well and who are self-seeking, and bullies, and unkind, and are blinkered to their agenda. And only because of the sin in our hearts, because we want to be the boss, and we don't want to serve others. But it seems to me here in chapter 22, we have the perfect reconciliation of God's perfect rule, and of our perfect freedom. The two are married. God is not the imperfect boss. He is the boss who is always fair and just and patient and kind, and he always gets it right. And we will not be self-seeking. 
We will not compare ourselves with others. We will not be lazy. We will love to serve the God who made us. We will love to be in the relationship that we were made for. We saw it last term, actually, in the letter uh, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 16. Do you remember, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. God's perfect rule. Our perfect freedom. Perfectly reconciled. We will serve him. And we will love it. I wonder as we finish, what do we do with teaching on heaven? We said in week one, didn't we, that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be, and where our hearts are, there our lives will follow. And so our treasure is to be in heaven, because that will shape our hearts, and our hearts will shape us and our lives. So the question is, in a world of little hopes that that mould us and allure us and attract us, how do we focus on heaven? How do we put our hearts there? Richard Baxter was a pastor from a few hundred years ago. He said this. uh, When he was 35, actually, I should say, in the introduction, he was 35, and he began to meditate for half an hour every day on heaven. And this this was why. He said, if you want light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? For because you do not think about heaven, your soul is like a lamp, not lighted. And your duty is like a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal daily from this altar and see if your offering will not burn. Keep close to this reviving fire. And see if your heart will not be warmed. See the point? He says, regularly, daily, we need to be thinking and focusing and meditating on this glorious hope that we have. And particularly, the hope of being with Jesus. Otherwise, the fire in our souls will go out. And we will get dim. I guess in our culture, half an hour a day is probably pushing it. You're thinking, where do I find the time in my week for that? What about making some space, though, this week to go through these verses again prayerfully? To read them through? To thank God for some of what we've been learning about? To personally respond? What about reading the chapter again? but with a commentary or a concordance open, so you can go to some of the background verses and try and understand some of the pictures better. So you can read Ezekiel and Isaiah and Exodus to help you grasp the language better that you're reading, to make it seem less alien to us. What about some kind of trigger during your day, every day, that might just give you five minutes peace to reflect on heaven? In the past, I've used when I brush my teeth. What about as you, as you commute on your bike, if you can still concentrate on cars? Maybe after you read your Bible. Maybe for ten minutes when the baby is sleeping. Whatever it is for you, whatever might work in your day, 
Take some time to reflect on heaven. It's my prayer that these verses, these chapters, won't just be academic for us. It won't just be an opportunity to get better theology, but rather that we might be a people who will be shaped by our future hope. Because there's a people who are shaped by their future hope who will thrive in the ups and downs of life. Who will keep on pressing on when life gets hard. Because they know where they are going. 